Let's pray. We are thankful, O God, that we, through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we can come to you and give you thanks for all that you have given us. You are our creator and our God and our provider and our shepherd, our Lord and our Savior, our hope and our peace. We are thankful that you loved us and sent your son Jesus to save us. We are thankful that you have sent your word to us through your apostles, through the preservation of your Holy Spirit, that we might have in our ears and in our hearts and in our minds the promise of salvation. We are thankful that you have sent your Holy Spirit to place that promise in our hearts. We are thankful that we can come as a people and sit under the preaching of your word. I am thankful for the privilege and the joy of being able to share these truths with others. We recognize that all we have and everything that we are comes from you. And we seek to do your will. We are thankful for this day of rest that you have given us. This Lord's Day. This first day of this week. The day that we can recognize that the resurrection in Christ and and the hope of new life in the age to come. We are thankful for all of the churches in our community and in our city and our state and in our country and around the world that are able to gather in your name today and praise you in spirit and in truth. We are thankful that you love us. I pray this morning for First Baptist Church of the Islands and their pastor there and their congregation that you will uh, give him the words that are needed uh, to both convict and to comfort the people of that congregation that they might grow in their knowledge of who you are. I pray that you will be with that congregation and you will help them uh, to uh, be praiseful and to be joyous and to know your love. I want to pray for Pastor Kenny Grant, Evangelist Kenny Grant, and all of his efforts, the power and the zeal that you have given him for all of these many years to go out into the highways and the byways and to proclaim your truth. I pray that you'll be with him today as he preaches your word somewhere. That you will use him in this coming revival uh, <clears throat> to uh, draw others to yourself. We pray for this congregation. Lord, there are many here uh, today, and we're thankful for that. And there are also many that are not here with us today, many because they're sick. And so, Lord, we pray for them. You as the great physician, we're thankful that we can come to you with our physical ailments and our, our hurts and our pains and our sorrows and know that you are a God who restores. We're thankful for this. I want to pray this morning for the Savannah Baptist Mission and all of the things that they're doing in order to lift up your son Christ for this community to see. We're thankful for their work that they are doing. Most importantly, Lord, we're thankful that we are allowed to rest in your promises. To know that you are a God who reigns and that you are a God who does as you pleases and all that you pleases is good. And so we come to those promises this morning seeking to know you better 
And I just pray that you will help us to do so. In the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible and you would like to turn with us, we're going to be in the book of John today. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have your Bible, the uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. Um, Today, we are continuing our study of the life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. And I hope that none of you in this room ever tire of that because it'll probably be three years or so before we get through this. But we're going to go through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we are taking a look at the chronological life and ministry of Jesus from the time of his birth until the time of his ascension uh, into heaven to his father's right hand. And so today we are going to be talking about Jesus, our creator and provider. I want to quickly share with you the words of one of the songs that we just sung just a few minutes ago. How beautiful the hands that serve the wine and the bread and the sons of the earth. How beautiful the feet that walk the long dusty road and the hill to the cross. How beautiful is the body of Christ. How beautiful the heart that bled that took all my sin sin and bore it instead. How beautiful the tender eyes that choose to forgive and never despise. How beautiful, how beautiful the body of Christ. And as he laid down his life, we offer this sacrifice that we will live just as he died, willing to pay the price. How beautiful a radiant bride Who waits for her groom with his light in her eyes. How beautiful when humble hearts give the fruit of pure life so that others may live. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. And as we study the life of Christ and we look at his physical body, born of the virgin, flesh and blood, walking on the earth. Today we're going to see him give wine and bread to people. We're going to see him uh, loving a people. We're going to see him providing for a people. We're going to see that he is our creator. And he is the groom. And we are his bride. And you know, in the modern world that we live in, The bride is always the one that gets all of the attention at the wedding. And she's the one that everybody stands up and watches as she comes down the aisle. But the reality is, is in their culture and at that time, it was the groom who wore all of the fancy clothes at the wedding. And it was the groom who the focus was upon. But as we're going to see today, we're going to realize that that through all of the scriptures, marriage is a beautiful picture of. Of God's relationship with his people. He is the groom. And we are his bride. And all through scriptures that echoes out. And today we're going to see a celebration of a wedding. And we're going to see how Jesus caters to that joy. And the festivity of that event. So let's turn now and look at John chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Um, our key words for our worshipers and training are creator, provider, and miracle. So let's go ahead and look at John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water so that they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he served the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the reading of God's word. We're going to see today a miracle. And in the New Testament, there are several words used to denote miracle. A mighty work, portents, wonders. John prefers the simple word signs. Jesus' miracles are never simply a naked display of his power. But they point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. uh, John, as he writes, uses the word signs because a sign points us to something. And all through the book of John, as Jesus is doing these miracles, um, we see these miracles taking place. But we need to understand that these miracles are not just something just to express his power, but to point us to who he is. Have you ever thought about the things that Jesus heals? He heals blindness. He heals deafness. He heals people who are paralyzed and people who are crippled. He raises the dead. And the reality is, is behind those physical realities is a deeper spiritual truth. When Jesus sets open the eyes of a blind man, it points us to the reality that Jesus can open your and I, you and I, and our eyes, there you go, to the spiritual truths of his promises. We are blind in our sin, and Jesus comes along and opens our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. We can't hear what he says. And the miracle of curing the deaf points us to the deeper reality that God can open the ears of the lost 
to hear the promises of God. God heals those who are lame. You and I know from our own personal experiences, we often falter in our ability to walk with God. Some of us in this room are getting to an older age and we know what it means to be able to falter with our walking, right? It's hard to keep our balance. But the spiritual reality behind God curing the physical reality of of a crippled person is that he gives us feet and legs and strength to walk in his will. And so all of these miracles that Jesus does points us to a deeper reality. Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out of that grave. He physically came back from the dead. He had been dead for four days, and he rose from the dead. But the deeper spiritual reality is, in Ephesians, we are told that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive together in Christ. If you're in this room today and you are a born-again believer, a child of God, it is because in the same way that God in the garden called out and said, Adam, where are you? He called you his sheep and said, come unto me, you who are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He calls us out of the death of sin and the sorrows of sin and brings us to life in him. And so all of these miracles that we see in the Bible all point us to the deeper spiritual realities of who he is. Now, there are also physical realities to his healing. All of us in this room can attest to times in our lives when God has actually physically healed us from sickness. But there is coming a day when the new heavens and the new earth are inhabited by people who have new bodies... And we will no longer be sick. We will no longer be blind. We will no longer be lame or deaf or dumb. And we will have life and hope eternal. So we have the physical reality, a spiritual reality, and then a new physical and spiritual reality in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as Jesus is doing these things, we need to understand that not only are they professing to the people who see it that he is the son of God, that he has the power of God. But it points us to the message of he is the one who has come to save us from all of our sickness and sorrow and pain. And so there's always a message behind his miracles. And as we read the book of John, from now on as we study through the book of John, every time you hear the word sign, that's another word for miracle, we need to understand that John is saying what? Hey, this is pointing to something. You need to see what this is pointing to. A guy named James Boyce, he was one of the uh, headmasters at uh, Southern Seminary up in the 1800s. I think it's Kentucky. Yeah, he said, The constant working of his divine power and energy by which he, Jesus, is essentially God, always working with the Father, were indeed concealed. But at times, before the people at large, and more frequently before his disciples, the divinity shone through the veil, which ordinarily concealed it, and testified that he truly was God. 
And so what we're going to see is, is that all through the ministry of Jesus, he's going to use these miracles to prove who he is, to point to the spiritual realities behind who he is. And not only that, but to assure and ensure the faith of believers. One of the constant themes we're going to see in the life of Jesus, or one of the constant things we will see in the life of Jesus is, miracles do not necessarily make believers. Have you ever noticed that people get really close to God when they get really sick or sad? How many have had a a terrible diagnosis of a cancer or or something terrible and they've gone to the doctor and boy, they got really religious for a while and they prayed and they prayed and by God's grace and His providence, He healed them. And then they went right back into the world and lived just like they did before. They were drawn close to God for just a season because of a worldly sorrow. But for the true believer... When God reveals Himself to us miraculously, it strengthens and assures our faith. And you'll see that in all of these scriptures. Jesus will do these magnificent miracles. He, he pulled Lazarus out of the dead. And it said, and some believed on Him that day. Some went back and told the, the Pharisees what He did. And so when He does these miracles, there are all kind of different reactions, is there not? Sometimes it's, Wow, look at that. And then they walk off and forget it. Sometimes they ponder in their heart what he's done. And maybe it takes a while later before they come to faith. But with those who are truly believers, his disciples, what we see over and over again is that these miracles affirm the faith that they already have and strengthen them. So as we go through this study, we need to see the reality that it is not believing uh, and it's not seeing that creates believing. It is believing that creates seeing. That's very important for you and I to remember. God and His ways and His word works completely opposite of the way that the world works. The world says, give me proof and I will believe you. Show me and I will believe you. But God doesn't work that way. What he says is, believe me and I'll show you. And so for the believer, when God does the miraculous, it assures and affirms our faith and strengthens our faith. Like his word, his signs challenge us to respond in either belief or unbelief. Now, sign faith is less valuable than faith that merely responds to the Spirit's witness. It nevertheless is better to begin with no faith at all. But in this text, we are going to see his disciples have already begun to believe in Jesus. And now this sign is going to affirm what they believe. Jesus sets aside the water pots in this story. A picture of orthodox traditional practices. That are bound up in hypocrisy and external righteousness. His focus is on the internal righteousness. And so him turning that water into wine is going to be a direct evidence that he has stepped into the the world of Judaism. And is doing what he can to show them that it's not the external that matters, it's the internal. You let the internal work and the external will take care of itself. And so... 
we're going to see the uh, gospel is going to consistently be represented as something that supersedes Jewish traditions. This sign is going to initiate, and this is very important to see, this miracle is the first of his miracles that is reported. And what we're going to see is this is going to initiate the conflict between him and the Jews. Now, guys, Jesus is Jewish and his disciples are Jewish. And there are plenty of Jewish people that are believers and saved. But in the book of John, without exception, when John uses the term the Jews... He is speaking of the enemies of Jesus and the gospel. Remember in John 1 he says, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those that did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And so what we need to understand is, is when John talks about the Jews, he's talking about the enemies of Jesus. Now, let me be clear. Not all Jewish people are enemies of Jesus. All of his disciples were Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. His mom is Jewish. There is a Jewish uh, segment of the body of Christ. But when John is using this term, the Jews, he's speaking of Jesus' enemies. So this sign is going to initiate a conflict with the Jews. The cost is clear in Jesus' response to his mother. And we'll see that in a minute. This initiates the distinction between Jesus and Judaism. This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. And the sign and what this miracle points me and you to, what we need to see in the sign is that God is the creator and God is our provider. The sign, this miracle points us to the fact that God is the creator and God is the provider. Now, y'all remember two weeks ago, uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Remember that? Well, where is he getting that concept from? Well, we talked about uh, Abraham sacrificing his son. And what did Abraham say to his son Isaac as they were walking up that hill? He said, Dad, I got the wood and I got the knife. Uh, and we have the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say to his son? God will provide the lamb. And the term that Abraham used, the Hebrew term that he uses in that text is Jehovah Jireh. God our provider. So this son is pointing us to the reality that God is our creator. And God is our provider. So let's go to the text now and take a look. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So the first thing we see here is we have a wedding. I do want to bring up the very important theme of weddings in the Bible. Have you ever thought about the fact that the first covenant God made was with with Adam and Eve? He said the two, what did he say? That the woman shall leave her her family and join her husband. They will leave their mother and father and the two will become one. What did God do in the garden? He instituted the, the marriage covenant. And where did Eve come from? She came out of Adam's side, out of his rib. 
So in the very beginning, God established this covenant of marriage. And Eve came out of Adam's rib. We see a bride and we see a bridegroom. And where is the bridegroom now? He sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And who is his bride now? His people, the church. And where did we came come from? We came out of his side. Remember he hung on that cross and what did they do? They punched that spear in his side and the water and the blood came out. And through the shedding of his blood, he purchased a people for himself. So all the way back in the garden, there was this picture of the bride and the groom. And then all through the scriptures, we see that as well. We studied a story in our, in our uh, Monday uh, Bible study. Isaac got a bride. Abraham sent a servant all the way back to his home country to get a bride for him. Remember that story? And, and, and uh, the servant stood by the well and prayed to God and said, Oh God, if you're going to be successful to me, let the next girl who comes up here say this to me. And sure enough, that's what, exactly what happened in then. And so we need to realize that that is a picture of Abraham, a father, sending his servant to go and to claim a bride for himself, for his son. Abraham sent his servant to go and claim a bride for his son. That's a picture of the father sending his son to claim a bride for his people. That's a picture of the father sending his spirit to claim a people for himself. So wrapped up in the redemptive narrative of all of scripture is this beautiful theme of marriage. Jacob and Leah, right? He woke up the next morning. What happened? It wasn't who he thought he married, right? He had to work another seven years to get his wife, Rachel, but we saw that marriage. Um, how about the story of Ruth? I've never met any woman in a Southern Baptist church that doesn't love the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful story of a kinsman redeemer who comes and, and draws a bride to himself. Remember the story of Ruth? And who comes out of that? Well, Jesse. And who comes out from Jesse? Who comes from that marriage? Jesse uh, or Obed and who comes from Obed Jesse and who comes from Jesse David and who comes from David we run down the line and so we see this marriage between Ruth and her uh, kinsman and redeemer Boaz and we see a beautiful picture of, of God's redemptive work that marriage and we see in the song of Solomon did you know that most people don't understand that the song of Solomon is a love a poem of love an expression of love between a bride and her groom and a groom and her bride. God has interwoven this theme of marriage all through the scriptures. In the book of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet and he was commanded to go out and marry a prostitute, remember? And God said that this marriage uh, that you are going to that uh, be able to take part in is going to be an expression of my love for a people who have fallen off into spiritual harlotry, into spiritual adultery. Hosea married a prostitute. God reached down to a sinful people and brought out of them a bride as well. And so again, over and over again, we see this. In the New Testament, we see the, the wedding feast 
in many of Jesus' parables. In Matthew 22, 1 through 14, Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and Luke 12, we see these parables of a wedding feast. Right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Who is his bride? His people. And then all the way at the end, in the book of Revelation, we see the consummation of the marriage supper. All of those who were invited and all of those who come now gather around the table with the bride. The groom comes and all the people come. And we have this festive occasion, a celebration of the eternal marriage between God and his people. And so I want you to see as we read this text today. The underlying theme behind all of this and how valuable and how treasured marriage should be as a part of our lives because it's very valuable to God. He's interwoven it into the redemptive story of what he does for us. And we need to see that as we read through the scripture. Marriage feast. uh, It says on the third day there was a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there and his disciples. So these marriage feasts were necessary They were a part of a legitimate marriage. Such a feast could be used in a court to prove that a marriage was legal. It had taken place. Um, We we tend to these days have these very costly weddings. We put a lot of money and, and time into them. And we have these big celebrations. And the reality is that they were doing the same thing back then. Uh, some people prefer to, to, you know, run down to the justice of the peace and get them a piece of paper and get it signed. And that's a marriage to them. But there's something a little more significant about a, a festival, about a marriage ceremony, and about a, a beautiful, extravagant uh, festival to celebrate the joining of the two together. And that's what's going on here. So they're having this marriage feast, and it is reasonable for us to believe that Jesus and his family and these disciples would have known the groom. It was walking distance from Nazareth to Cana. And so we would assume that some of them knew the people in the wedding, and that was a reason why they came to take part. In verse 3, it says, the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So, according to the custom, a wedding celebration was to last about seven days, and many associates of the bride and the groom would m- remain for the full period of standing from work to share in the joy of the new family. This wine running out may indicate that the family was poor and that they had the minimum provisions hoping for the best. Remember that the way that the Jewish marriage uh, took place was the betrothal the proposal and then generally the groom and the bride would separate for a whole year and for that time that they were separated the groom was responsible to prepare a house and provide for the bride what we're seeing here with them running out of wine is a very uh, tragic social uh, faux pas if you will They've ran out of wine, and it reflects directly on the bridegroom that he had all of this time to prepare, and yet now they don't have any wine. It, it, it would be an indication that he would not be an adequate provider for the bride. So it is possible uh, that the financial responsibility laid on the groom 
and he just didn't have the money to, to provide for him. What is more certain is that the groom was facing a, a social stigma for this. This would be talked about for years to come. Wine in the ancient world was diluted with water to be between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength, something very similar to like a less strong American beer. Undiluted wine about the strength of wine today was viewed as strong drink and earned disapproval with the people of uh, Jerusalem. Wine was not just unfermented grapes, as some popular North American apologists have made as a argument for abstinence. So you might hear people say that, well, they didn't really drink wine back then. They would mix it and make it so weak that nobody would ever get drunk off of it or ever get a buzz off of it. But the truth of the matter is, is that up until the 1800s, there was no way to uh, pasteurize wine. You couldn't keep it from fermenting. It was going to ferment whether you wanted it to or not. And so we use Welch's grape juice in our communion services today because back at the turn of the 1800s, 1900s, there was an abstinence movement going around the country. And all of the Christian uh, people were saying, uh, we as Christians are not ever to drink anything. And a matter of fact, all of the wine in the Bible was just really grape juice. They would use that as an argument to say that, uh, that we're not supposed to drink wine. Well, along come Mr. Welch, and he figured out a way to pasteurize grape juice to keep it from fermenting. And so what happens is, is now they started using uh, the uh, just grape juice in the communion services. But they did that to abstain, refrain from using real wine. But the truth of the matter is, is that every church and every uh, century before the 1800s, before Mr. Welch come along and pasteurized grape juice, every church in this country would have used real wine in their communion service. That's all they had. So, we do need to understand that the Bible teaches that wine is wine. Paul says, do not be drunk with much wine. Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. So, the Bible does not condemn the drinking of wine. What the Bible condemns is drunkenness. Proverbs tells us, and so through the book of Proverbs, which is a Jewish uh, literature, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And the Bible also, we know that the Jewish people would have looked down on drunkenness. Wine was a standard part of daily life in the ancient Mediterranean world. Palestine was no exception. Seven or more of the Galilean cities and villages were heavily engaged in wine production, which constituted one of Galilee's primary industries. Jewish texts assume the importance and the necessity of wine for festive occasions, including the blessing of Sabbath meals. So when Jesus and his disciples were, were uh, having that last supper, Jesus was not using much as grape juice. He was using real wine. Now, it wouldn't have been strong wine like we have today, but he used wine. And so we need to understand that the Bible does teach that wine is acceptable. I don't personally drink. I go a lot of times and I I go have uh, a meal up here at one of these places and I'll go sit at the bar. And the reason I sit at the bar is because I don't want to have to wait on a table and I usually get quicker service sitting at the bar. 
But I often worry that somebody's going to come in and see me sitting there in a bar thinking I'm sipping something. So I always make sure they give me one of them coaches that, you know, one of them that Coca-Cola so they know I'm drinking Coca-Cola. I don't drink because I know what it does to me. And it destroyed my life at one time. And I just stay away from it because it's just not for me. But I'm certainly not going to look down my nose at a Christian who has a glass of wine with their dinner at night. Again, the Bible preaches against drunkenness. We need to understand that. And we don't need to look down our nose at folks. If you see your, you know, what is, it, what is the old saying? The only difference in a Methodist and a Baptist is that the Methodists will speak to each other at the liquor store. Right? And so that there's a truth in that. Like, we don't need to look down our nose on people that have a glass of wine with their food at night. That, like, there's nothing in the world wrong with that. Or maybe an elderly person who's having trouble going to sleep having a half a cup of brandy before they go to bed. It's no different than drinking NyQuil or DayQuil. That's alcohol too. So we need to understand that the Bible teaches that wine is a part of life. And wine is a picture of joy in the Bible. The Bible uses wine as a picture of joy. Um, and so we see that they ran out of wine. And so now Mary comes to Jesus and she says to him, she says they've run out of wine. Now it is likely that Mary turned to Jesus because she had learned to rely upon his resourcefulness. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, most people believe that by this time in Jesus' life that Mary was a widow. Joseph does not appear in the scriptures after the scene in the temple when Jesus was 12 years of age. And by this time and at this party, Jesus himself was not only known as the carpenter's son, but the carpenter. Remember, in that day, the son would take over the trade of the father. And by this time, Jesus was known as the carpenter. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus had taken over the, the family craft. Now, uh, the family fortunes were probably uh, in Jesus' hands. Jesus did a lot of manual labor. Like any widow, Mary was leaning on her eldest son. So Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Jesus separated uh, his call and his hour in this verse. Jesus called Mary a woman. Woman, what does that have to do with me and not mother? Now, this probably indicates that there's a new relationship between them as he now begins to enter into his public ministry. This term that he calls her mother is not derogatory. He's not like saying, woman, what's your problem? That's not the, the attitude that he's taking with this. Because when he's hanging on the cross, he looks at John and, and says, um, woman, behold your son. He's hanging on the cross and he tells Mary, woman, behold your son, talking to John who was now going to take care of Mary. So what we pretty much sure of is that Jesus in this statement is starting to separate his distinction as son of Mary to the distinction son of God, son of man, the one who has come to save. He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? Um, if pro literally the question would be, what does that have to do with me and you? They've run out of wine. What does that have to do with me and you? So Jesus in his public ministry was not only primarily the son of Mary, but he was the son of man who had come to bring the realities of heaven to the people on earth. 
So what he is doing by making that statement is he is beginning. Remember, this sign, this miracle is going to be the very sign that kicks off his earthly ministry. And so what he is doing in that statement is saying, I've got work to do, Mom. And my relationship with my father and his will is the priority now. We'll see that later when him and his mom and his brothers all come to him and try to get him out of the house because it says they thought that he had gone crazy. Like he, so there's a point now when his ministry is kicking off where his responsibility is now going to be more openly expressed towards his father's will than opposed to being a son at his house. God the Father would never tell Jesus and Jesus would never in any way dishonor his mother. We know that, right? Why? Because to honor mother and father is one of the commandments and he always fulfilled all of the commandments. So in staying this woman, what is this to you and I? He's not dishonoring his mother. He is honoring what he has to do. And so we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus is rebuking his mother. However, courteously, uh, his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda or manipulation has to be set down. He is embarked on a ministry and that purpose of his coming is his heavenly father's will. But now he has entered into the purpose of his coming. Everything. Even his family ties had to be subordinated to his divine mission. Even his family ties had to be subordinated to his divine mission. Can we say the same for ourselves? The proper distinction is God, family, others, self. Say that again. God. First, family, others, self. That's the proper order of what our our desire should be towards. Unfortunately, this world teaches us to flip that on its head. We worship self first, and then if God's got anything, when we've got anything left over, we'll give that to God. But Jesus is making sure that we understand this, that his purpose is to do his Father's will. He has a divine mission. Now, he says to his mother, my time has not yet come. And we'll see this over and over again through the Gospels. Jesus will make this statement to his mother, to his uh, brothers, to his family, to the people around him. My time has not come. 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 But there is going to come a time where he's fixing to go to the cross and what he's going to say. The hour is now upon us. Like, this is why I've come. So when he says my time has not yet come, he's saying the word hour constantly refers to his death on the cross and the exaltation bound up in, in what he's come to do. It's not time. It's not time. It's not time. But there's also another way that we can take that statement when he says my hour has not yet come. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. And so what I want to do is I want to quickly look at a couple of verses in the Old Testament that show us that in the millennial age when Messiah comes, the wine will flow. All right, let's look at Jeremiah 31, 12. It says, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. 
And they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of their flocks and the herds, and their life will be like a watered garden. And they will never languish again. So this is a hope that the Jewish people are looking forward to when Messiah comes and establishes the new covenant. All right? They will come and there will be bounty, grain, and new wine. All right? And then, then we'll look again at uh, Hosea 14.7 says this. Those who live in his shadow will again raise, raise a grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. All right? So, and then one last verse there. We'll look at Amos 9, 13 to 15. Behold. Remember we learned that last week. What did it mean to behold? To see. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treaders of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So again, the Jewish people are in hopes. They're looking forward to the time when Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. And what is one of the significant things about that kingdom? That the wine will flow. So when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, it could be pointing to the fact that he has not come uh, until after his death, burial, and resurrection to bring in this uh, reality. But him turning that wine, water into wine, points to people of Jerusalem to that reality. That when Messiah comes, the wine will flow. That out of the deadness of that old uh, religion will come new wine and a new way and a new hope. So, there was... Mary clearly did not understand what Jesus was saying Uh, his words of rebuke his mother said and this is one of the verses we need to really focus on here look at John 2 5 it says this his mother said to those the servants whatever he says to you do it that's one of the best I think if you could give your kids that verse to memorize that's a fantastic verse isn't it whatever Jesus says to you do it right trust and obey whatever it is that Jesus says just do that I can't think of any more sound advice in any of the world. So Mary shakes off this gentle rebuke and exemplifies the best kind of persevering faith. A faith that is perfectly content to leave matters in the hands of Jesus. He says, woman, what is this to me and you? What do I have to do about that? She shrugs that off and tells the people, I know he's going to do something. Just do what he tells you to do. Whatever he does will be the right thing. So what does he do? Well, there were uh, six. Now, Jesus makes clear that his mother cannot command favors of him simply based on her relationship to him. Her faith is the catalyst of his actions. She comes to Jesus because she knows that if there's anybody in that party that can do anything about it, it's him. 
And so Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water. So they filled him up to the brim. Jesus tells the servants to fill the pots. They fill it to the brim. This is possibly to indicate that there can be no addition to whatever he's going to do. These pots at that time, miracle contained nothing but water. They would have roughly held about 100 to 150 gallons. Right? That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, and so the pots together held roughly 100 to 150 gallons. The sheer quantity of water turned into wine then becomes symbolic of the lavish provisions of our God in a new age. He said to them, I want you to draw some out and now take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now the head waiter, the master of ceremonies or the wedding planner, if you will, right? They say, go take some to that guy. So they carry some over to him. The head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servant who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom. John's point is to simply show us that what Jesus provides is unqualifiedly superior to anything that we have. Everything that he does, we must tie to the new messianic age that Jesus is initiating or introducing. There are things coming for us that we, our eyes and our minds and our hearts cannot even fathom. The wonderful things that God has planned for his people. And so often we, just like the Jewish people, get so caught up in this temporary world around us that we lose sight of the beautiful things that God has provided for us and will continue to provide for us. So the, the head man, the head waiter, the head bride or the bride, uh, the master of the banquet, the wedding planner, if you will, says, Every man wait, uh, serves good wine first, and then after the people have drunk freely, he brings out the inferior wine. But you have saved the good wine until last. Right. Any of you have ever had a party at your house, like right? when all the guests first come over, you have all the stuff that you've been planning all week and the fancy stuff that you had prepared for it, right? But if too many people show up and you start running, running out of food, what do you do? You run in there, you find some of the vegetables that are like a couple days old and start chopping them up, getting the, the secondary stuff that you had just to supply some needs for the party. But when the party first starts, you get the best you got. You put on this beautiful presentation. You got all the decorations on like they're supposed to be. And you got this fancy thing set up. And then if that's not enough, then you, you dig in for the second round later. And with this, it's the same thing. Most people, when they drink, after a few drinks, they can't taste the drinks anymore. Anyhow, so they started, most people in most parties would start out with the, the expensive and the, the fanciest of the wines. And then after the people had started getting a buzz on, then they would go and they would get the cheap stuff. Because by this time, the people wouldn't discern that, hey, he's serving us that $2 wine instead of the, the $75 wine. They, people wouldn't care anymore, you see. And that's what the, the waiter, the head waiter, the, the master of the ceremony is saying. Why did you wait until the end of the party to bring out the best wine? And you and I say the same things. Oh, God, why didn't you step in and do something about this? Why didn't you? Why did you make me go through all of this before you stepped in and did anything about it? So Jesus did this in Cain of Galilee as the beginning of his signs and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
It is important for us to realize that not only his signs arouse wonder, they're hard to explain, and that they demonstrate divine power, but also that they point us to deeper things. They show us God at work. John says nothing of all of the effect of the sign on the master of the banquet or on the servant who had actually knew what happened. His focus is on the disciples who saw his glory and put their faith in him. See who John focuses on? The miracle went, who all saw it? They all saw it. They all saw the miracle. The servants, the, the headmaster, he didn't see it happen, but he, he witnessed the effects of it. And so there was a lot of people in that room that physically knew what happened. But there was that one group, his disciples, who when they saw it, it strengthened their faith and said, we're following the right one. John says, uh, he does not tell us, uh, he does not tell us his disciples saw his glory or he tells us that they saw his glory and they put his their faith in him we think of god's glory you think about moses on mount sinai what did he do when he saw god's glory when he came down off the hill he was a glow he had to literally put a veil over his face because the children of israel couldn't stand to be around him they couldn't stand the the glory that was shining off of his face but god's glory is now veiled in human flesh And through this act, it says that his disciples saw his glory. How did they see it? By faith. They believed in him. He does tell his disciples, he does tell us that they saw his glory, they put their faith in him. And we need to understand that his glory was seen by some and rejected by others. By this first sign, Jesus revealed his glory. His glory would be revealed its greatest measure on the cross, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation. But every step along this course was a foreshadowing of that glory to come. The glory was not visible to all of them who had seen the miracles. The glory cannot be identified solely with a miraculous display, but in the witnessing through faith. There's an old hymn that we sing that says, Oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Your glory not in part, but in whole. Right? And what does it mean? That what I believe in my heart will become a reality to me to my eyes. When God on that last day comes and splits the sky open and comes down in all of his glory. What I have believed in my heart will then become a physical reality to my eyes. So this first sign, and we'll finish with this because we've got to finish. This first sign uh, tells us that God is our creator and that God is our provider. And John tells us at the end of his book why these signs were given. Now I'll finish with this verse and then we're done. John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs. Now, this is the end of the book, Gospel of John. After he's told us all of these stories, he said, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But watch what it says. 
But these have been written so that who? You and me may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that is the greatest miracle of all. When God reaches down and pulls a heart of stone out of a man's chest and puts a heart of flesh in him and breathes his spirit to him and gives him new life, that is the greatest miracle that is ever performed. I pray that you know that miracle today. And if you do not, the Bible tells us, turn from sin and self and he will forgive us. He will save us. He will put that new joy, that new wine in our hearts. He will fill us with his spirit and he will give us a hope that this world cannot provide. My prayer is that you know that hope in your life. So again, first sign, first miracle, a realization that Jesus is our creator and Jesus is our provider. Philippians 4.19 said, My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in heaven in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.